All right. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Waiting to be Signed, a very special interview episode. I'm joined today by Trinity, of course, and today we've got with us Kim Ossendorf, famed pixel-pushing artist. If you've been collecting on FX Hash, you probably have seen a lot of his work over the years. If you are an art box collector, you probably know him for Cargo from just a couple months back. We're super excited to talk to you, Kim, and learn about you and your art and your practice. How's it going? Hello, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours, 100%. Thanks for joining. We really appreciate it on this Monday afternoon slash early evening for you. This is a big one for us. It's a big one. You're, you're a, you've been a highly requested guest for a while that we've been like a little scared to reach out to because we really don't know that much about coding and your process and the stuff that you do is so fascinating. So I think we're hoping to peel back some of that in the, the questions today. But before we jump into your work in, in particular, can you introduce yourself to everyone who's listening who might not know who you are? Tell us about your history in art and coding and how you came to find the blockchain. Yeah, um, I'm Kim Asenow from Germany, <laughs> and um, I basically grew up with computers. So I'm, I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s. I was in the lucky position that my father got a, me a computer quite early. So he has no clue about computers, but he knew, okay, this is the tool of the future. I need to provide computers. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I grew up with computers, and I think these, these early 90s, aesthetic that the software had at the time is still something um, that is in me and is more or less what all my aesthetics um, are built upon. Yeah, so that's that's how it started. I, uh, Of course, like every child, I started with playing computer games, but pretty soon I yeah, wanted to do more with the computer uh, using softwares, down, not, not downloading it at the, in the 90s. Downloading wasn't really a thing. So I used tools like paint uh, or adobe animator to draw simple things to design clothing even to uh, and started to make music and use the computer for that and then i became a bit obsessed with graphic design and eventually wanted to become a graphic designer which uh, basically brought me to the school of art and design in kassel but there i quite fast figured out okay graphic design is not really enough so, so I, I can use the computer in much more interesting ways when i incorporate automations that's basically where i started to develop my own toolkit yeah that, that i wanted to work with code to create graphics or also audio or interactive stuff and um, that's more or less the route Another important component for me is the internet itself as a platform and as an outlet. So I was pretty fascinated by the possibilities that you can create an artwork and put it in front of an audience basically at the same day yeah, by just coding a website and uh, buying an URL. So it's like a release cost of whatever, 10 euros to put your art on the internet. And that's what I think made me or is the fundamentals of my way of thinking that I really love this easy outlet, the global audience, this technology that is very digital. Um, so I, I, I consider myself more as a digital artist than anything else. So um, coding and automation just simplifies my way of working. Yeah, I, am, I don't really have a clear vision of the output that I'm looking for. I'm more on a research and uh, I want to find things that I cannot imagine. Therefore, the tools, writing code to find something became my absolute uh, favorite in working. I still also use Photoshop or Illustrator or even build some kind of physical things, not so often, but now and then, it happens also to that some works are printed or uh, still works. But now, especially with the blockchain, it feels so native yeah, to the blockchain that you can put code on it. The nice thing for me is I can create an artwork that has, a, let's say, footprint of 10 or 15 kilobytes of data, but it can unfold worldwide in an endless stream of whatever animations that would let's say compared to a video recording yeah if i record for instance a cargo in high quality 
it will easily end up in multiple gigabytes and will still look shitty. Yeah? So <laughs> um, if the code can run on a computer in real time and render the graphics directly to a screen, I can achieve a very high quality for my taste and I can incorporate the, the blockchain as a carrier and I can also use the technologies. I mean, a smart contract is basically just a very small program and I can also use that in my favor in using conceptual strategies and building these, what I like to call worlds around my work. Yeah, So each work is a bit, for me, like a little world where I dive in when I create them and I hope that somebody like the visitors or spectators see something similar in it and can get lost a bit in it. Yeah, Not just on the pure visual first view, but also on a broader scape of the work. Yeah? That it's, it's a little world and I hope people can see that and feel that and enjoy that. That's an amazing introduction and thank you for that history. What you're saying is really just kind of reflected from what we heard from some other artists of, I don't want to say your era because like we're in this era, but, um, you know, people who grew up with computers in the 80s and 90s, like Peter Pasma comes to mind as like a great example for, it's a style, it's an aesthetic, it's an ethos. Before we get back into the art, I wanted to hear more about how did you discover the blockchain? What was your path to Web3 and releasing art on it? And we completely agree with you that it is like absolutely synergistic with the generative art and code-based art scene. Love to hear more. I mean, I, as an artist who works like 90 or even more percent digital, it was more or less difficult to to make a living from that. Yeah, So I, I worked as freelancer. I did web design. I did coding, front end, back end. Um, all the stuff for agencies to make a living through art and all the exhibitions and stuff. Uh, I didn't make basically any money. And I think my, of my art is more like a bit like an objectification yeah, of digital items uh, and has ever been. It's not or mostly not uh, institutional or political. Also, I, I made a few political works and yeah, made experiments in this, this direction eventually i always came back to to my own expressive work yeah so it's mostly work that doesn't have a clear message and want to tell much it's more really like okay there's this insane idea and it i get lost in it, it i get obsessed with it and i need to express it through that way of working it it was never really possible and i basically went broke multiple times and uh always needed to pick up another job and um, quit basically the art world for some time until I got depressed and sick and then I quit my job again and got back into art. The last time that happened <laughs> was uh, early 21. Before that, I, of course, had followed a bit the crypto hype, um, but never really participated in it because it's... Uh, you need a bit of money to just jump in and gamble, let's say. And um, yeah, a family, so I need to take care for that and provide. So that was always very important for me. But eventually I again quit my job <laughs> and basically a bit recovering yeah, from a serious depression, actually. And while doing that, when I found my energy back, I started to finally go back online, search what's going on. And then I saw, okay, there's a new world going on yeah there's something different there is a new dynamic and a lot of artists i knew over the years or uh, met even are participating in it and um, i started to look around and um, started to check my old peers yeah what's going on tell me explain me the stuff two friends um, emilio gomaris and em emily gerweiss pushed me to mint some stuff you just try it out they even sent me some Ethereum to get started. I just minted a few things on Foundation, but it was a bit, yeah, let's say frustrating. Yeah, you, you paid a lot of money and nobody really cared for that. And then one day I saw, uh, mostly over Twitter, a bunch of people like uh, Leander Herzog or uh, Marius Watz talking about Hicket Nang. So uh, that was more or less the first contact i had that was really fun yeah so you just need a few bucks to mint some stuff and um i would say for one month i minted old works mostly gifs and a few selected outputs from from 
various works and offered them through Hicket Nang. And there was quite interesting dynamic happening. I was literally sitting at my therapy with my therapist and we were celebrating that I sold a sold art <laughs> for real money. And um, yeah, I think that was the point where I decided to start a new project and do something new and really wanted to create a new world, not just minting single pieces, unrelated or older works, but really wanted to put all my knowledge and styles again together and um, come up with something new. How were you selling stuff prior to NFTs? I mean, were you putting files onto discs or were you taking stills out of animations or, or GIFs? Like we've heard from people who work in the traditional art space that that's how sometimes digital artists have to sell their work. It's like literally on a disc, <laughs> right? That gets handed over to someone. So how had you tried to sell work like that? Or had you never tried to sell animated work before NFTs? I, of course, have seen that and heard that, but it doesn't felt right for me. Um, digital art belongs not on a disc for me. Yeah, It's something that it just exists in a virtual space somehow. Of course, there's a file, but this file can be copied to anything. And I didn't have the intention to tie it to a device and say, okay, this is the original you need a disc or something like this um, i sold a couple of prints basically that was more or less the only thing um, which made sense for me since i like images on the wall a lot and um, i like also these physical objects that can come out of it but then it's let's say not the real original artwork yeah it's like a replicate or replica of this work which is nice, but um, also at the time when I have worked with galleries for some periods, it was maybe a bit too modern, yeah, let's say, uh, my work. So people who were looking into computer art or especially coded art or generative art were mostly looking for pen plotters, drawings from whatever the 80s and 90s or even older. Or we're looking to very established artists like Casey Reese or people like that. I was in a very small niche and didn't really get attention. And it just never felt like, okay, there is the possibility to make a living from that. Which is also why I didn't really take a great effort in, in proceeding that. I know of uh, Raphael Rosendahl who had a re really good strategy in creating websites and basically selling the website inclusive the domain name that's something yeah which creates the feeling of an original yeah you 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 own the domain name created by an artist but you also have to take care to keep it alive so i like that a lot but i also didn't felt like okay i just copy that system for myself <laughs> so it was um more for the arts over the years and not for the money Perfect. <laughs> what do you think, Trini? Should we talk some art? Should we ask some art-specific questions then? Yeah, let's do that. Blockchain, as you said earlier, just makes so much sense with everything that you've been doing. It's true to the code. It's true to the digital ownership. You know, everything is there and available. It doesn't just have to exist on a website, although I'm sure that there are some fun things you could do with like test domains and in addition to the NFT as the certificate of ownership. Speaking about prints and the physicals that you were selling before, a lot of the work that we know you best for is, sure, technically you could spit out you know, a still for a print, but much of the beauty and much of most of the enjoyment in that level of immersion that you speak to is in the movement of the piece. And I think that all of your works, they are so different, but they are so cohesive. When we hear about you, you're famous for pixel sorting. Very specifically, it's like, oh... Kim, pixel sorting, which I guess goes into the, the movement nature of your work. Can you explain what that is to the idiots in the crowd? That's me and Will, if you're unclear. <laughs> the non-coders. <laughs> the non-coders. What makes it revolutionary or new in this space? And what was what's the story behind it? I think that goes back a few years. And uh, initially... When I coined the term pixel sorting, it wasn't about animation. It was really about finding an interesting algorithm. 
at the beginning, like uh, everybody should maybe, I worked with processing. And there's a very simple line of code where you just load an image into an array. And then you just say sort the array and you get the image sorted by its color values. Basically turning every image into a color palette sorted, let's say, from red to blue or by brightness or whatever. But it also meant that the complete content of the image, except its color, are lost. And uh, still I thought, okay, that's quite nice. I have something that's conceptually very, very simple, and but also nice. And I found multiple people doing exactly the same thing. Of course, then it, I was bored or immediately and um, let it go for a while. And at some point I had the idea that I still wanted to work with this technique, but I wanted to find a way that kept some information in the images intact, yeah, so that you still can recognize the initial input image. I wrote my own sorting algorithm, which wasn't one-liner anymore, but more or less complex row-by-row and column-by-column sort mechanism, which made use of a threshold value. Yeah, so I could say, okay, if if a pixel in, in this line is too dark or too bright, stop the sorting here and find the next pixel below this threshold again. Yeah, so I basically sorted around content that I wanted to preserve. And um, the outputs were something that I haven't seen before. And uh, at the time, a lot of people haven't seen something similar before. So it, it was really a bringing out a new aesthetic somehow. And um, 10 years ago, there was a really big movement in the glitch art scene. Yeah, so I also knew a bunch of artists from this scene and um, have also, of course, experimenting myself with data banding or the use of text editors to edit JPEGs, for instance, to create unpredictable distortion results. And it played a bit in this direction. So um, when I released the code on GitHub, basically the whole glitch art scene made use of it. And uh, for some time, yeah, it was like every second glitch artwork has made use of this algorithm. And yeah, I think that's why this term um, is a bit connected to me. Yes, as a German, um, I thought it was a good idea to name it pixel sorting. (laughs) In retrospect, it's pretty stupid because, of course, there have been artists before working with sorting algorithms and sorting pixels. So that's very obvious to create something like that as a computer artist. But the way I did it, I think, created a new aesthetic in some some ways. That's where the initial or where, where actually the term comes from. And now in my newer works, since I've always been obsessed with the aesthetic of a pixel, yeah, a pixel is more or less the best abstraction possible. Yeah, It can mean anything. It's so simple. It's just a little tiny rectangle, but on a huge computer screen or the screen does, size doesn't matter, on a, on a screen, a pixel is just a very tiny fraction. That means you can use it as basically anything. It can be a person... It can be a coin, yeah. It can be whatever you want to see in it, and that's what I still like a lot. It's a very powerful abstraction tool. So I, I proceeded to keep my outputs pixel perfect, yeah. That's what I call it, or, or crisp. Yeah, I like these crisp renderings, and you cannot have that as a JPEG. Yeah, a JPEG always alters the image content a bit. You cannot really have it in a video file. So all these formats that were, let's say, consumer formats could not really translate it. And if you use GIFs, animated GIFs, they end up very fast in in very huge files. So also something not so desirable. Yeah, and then eventually I came to uh, real-time coding. That means you basically write code that is optimized for the graphics card, yeah, for the GPU. And um, there's a bit difference when you think in terms of coding. Normally, or every beginner starts, let's say, with object-orientated programming. That means you write a class, and all the objects you want to use in your code are defined by classes, and then you instantiate class instances. I I don't know if that's the right term. But yeah, so it's, it's something very structured. 
while when you write on the graphics card you cannot work with objects yeah there are no objects you you write the code for a single pixel basically and that felt super interesting to me since i like pixels so much now i can write a code that is executed for exactly one pixel on the screen yeah by that i tried to find my own way of doing things yeah so it's certainly something that let's say a, a hardcore coder like like peter pasma you mentioned all, earlier does completely different yeah so he's is i think much deeper into mathematics and coding so that i really try to find my own way that i can understand and uh, can experiment with but still keep these pixels as the main part of my work Yeah, so I, I found something that works for me <laughs> and um, the pixels are moving like I hope for. Yeah, it's maybe still some kind of pixel sorting, but for me, sorting is really, it's, it's more strict. Yeah, you sort by a certain rule. I want to sort alphabetically or whatever. In my recent work, it's more like shifting, moving, switching, but the term is still upon me. So it's... Uh, People call it pixel sorting and um, it's okay for me. So I, I'm not here to ask for specific wording or anything like this. So that's also why I just call myself digital artist. So I, I don't really like to be put in certain, especially not in a certain limitating vessel or whatever uh, the English phrase would be. So yeah, it's playing around with pixels, but at 60 frames per second and these pixels can be seen as whatever you are up to. And um, I think that's why the work is interesting for many people because uh, everybody can see or find something that is personal in it because of this high level of abstraction. Yeah, It's not a reference to anything that is already around in the art world. Yeah, It's, it's really more about the pixels. That, so, so very contemporary in in a sense somehow or i hope <laughs> yeah i want to shout out real quick so uh, i think a great example on object of what is i guess the more classical description of the pixel sorting is the release called mountain tour which looks like it was projects that you made in 2010 and then you uploaded digitally and you can see here it makes more sense as you explained it like this is a a mixed project with like found footage that then is being manipulated through pixel sorting to still kind of give you the impression of the mountain, but in a very glitched way. But then there's still like a lot of logic to the glitching and there's a lot of restriction of color. Yeah. There was a moment in the early FX hash discord, I think after you had released reading a book when everyone started talking about your other collections that were <laughs> on objects at that point, Hicket Nunk had gone down and like there was a frenzy to snap up a lot of that stuff. And I regret it because these are, these are such a great collection, but Let's talk about reading a book and some more about your animated stuff, because that seems to be what you've been on a lot in the last two years. We already know how you've found Tezos and um, I guess by extension then FX Hash. But did you ever think about potentially submitting that project to art blocks? Like, you know, obviously you released an art blocks this last year with Cargo, but how did that end up on FX Hash versus somewhere more curated? Were you ever curious to try that? with this project or, or others prior to Cargo? I mean, um, the first project I did with the idea of minting it was Monogrid. I created a website for it and manually minted 265 pieces on the Hick and Nang contract. It was, let's say, right before FX Hash was around, like one or two months before. And I just had the urge to do it on my own as much as possible. That's how it started. And based on the same principle or based on the idea uh, I used for Monogrid, yeah, like using a, f a feedback kind of system, I created reading a book more or less by the invitation of Seifert. He uh, wrote me, hey, look up here. I have a new website. You can mint generative projects. And I was um, yeah, looking into the website. No offense, Seifert. I wasn't so much imp impressed by its design. Yeah, so it, it it doesn't felt so right. But somehow, uh, after observing it a bit, yeah, for one or two weeks, then I felt okay. This is so, uh, this is somehow still pretty cool because it's it's more underground and it felt more 
avant-garde and it had this openness yeah it's it's anybody could just use it yeah then i specifically created reading a book with that in mind at the time it was really let's say not so well sought from me i, I just started yeah i just wanted to make a project for fx hash it's not like i had a big plan i didn't know about what kind of price can i put in on it or what edition size i just had the feeling okay let's try it out i put it online 1000 edition 10 tezos uh, let's go for it very experimental um, approach for me artblocks wasn't so uh, yeah so much on my ra radar then i mean i i knew that it was around but uh, i also didn't really like an application process and i it was just not really a serious option for me. So I didn't really had it as a possibility for this project. I just thought, okay, now I want to be part of this kind of project. Let's just try it out. With the original Monogrid series, you said that you manually minted a bunch of them. For reading a book, was there anything special or extra that you had to take into account, switching from like something that you're manually minting to more of like classic long-form generative art where the outputs are kind of at the full mercy of their algorithm. You know, you're, there is no curation layer. It's all based off of, you know, the random hashes. For Monogrid, I I didn't really curated the outputs as well, yeah? So I came up with a system, yeah, like a, a big grid, 16 by 16 pixels, and I distributed the parameters over the grid in a logical system. So uh, the outputs are very much tied to the bigger grid and the parameters spread over the grid yeah of course for a long form generative art project you can't control anything so specific so you define a range of randoms that you want to allow or not and um, i don't really think that's this thing yeah so um, i also struggle a bit with the name i mean it doesn't really mean so much to me it's it's a uh, you can, of course, say, okay, I write an algorithm. I want it to have as many possible variations. So I try to write it, especially with that in mind. Yeah. So I define a lot of parameter ranges here and there. And with that in mind, of course, I limit myself in, let's say, being radical. Yeah. So if I want to have a wide range of outputs, only a few systems are really suitable for that. And if I want to make something really interesting or new, then probably it needs to be more specific and allow less ranges of random. So maybe that's also a reason why we see not so many very interesting long-form projects or why long-form projects, if they are pretty cool, are not really so long-form. <laughs> I mean, one of the most famous is the, the Fidenza series, which is like a very well executed and very nicely made project. But um, that's technically not really uh, innovative yet. Yeah? It's, it's a noise field behind it. It's something that has been around before. Maybe nobody else had ever been made such a nice execution out of it. I mean, that's what Tyler Hobbs obviously also can, can put it into a very nice graphical style but uh, nonetheless technically it's for anybody who codes like 10 years here uh, you immediately see through it yeah this is where you really see the collector base of generative art way behind the artists you know we're still learning more and we're getting better each month and each year but the level of knowledge is just so different and Rightfully so, you know, very few of us are trained coders or trained artists. And so I can see a world in which people are very impressed by Fidenza, even if it isn't a technical marvel. Yeah, but I think that's normal or in every art form, both visual art, yeah, even in music, you should be behind the artist. I mean, that's what we are looking for. Yeah, somebody who is that surprises us or makes us happy. And that can only yeah happen if those people are experts in their field. and. Yeah, I mean, Tyler Hobbs is obviously an expert in a lot of things and he has been working with very even large scale paintings and murals 
that's his expertise so he really made a very good execution but um yeah it was just an example so i i could have taken any other work um often there is it is clear or not really innovative the, yeah the successful projects are of course very beautiful the question is what you as as a collector or art connoisseur do want from art yeah um do you want a beautiful image if that is what you're looking for you you are now you have a lot of offers or opportunities on the table there's a lot of beautiful things out there i personally don't look so much for beautiful things yeah i mean if i want to see something beautiful i go out in the nature yeah and uh, there i see i find the real beauty I'm looking for aesthetics that only computers can bring me, especially. Yeah. So I don't imitate paintings or papers or stuff like this. I'm really much drawn to these styles that only a computer can bring me, and it cannot re be replicated by something else. So for me, it doesn't really make sense to use the computer to replicate something that is already around. Yeah. So, um, It's always lags on something or it's uh, why should I simulate a paper and then even print it on paper? That's all a bit personal preference. Yeah, I think a personal preference. That's what I love about art. There is a broad field of possibilities and a place for everybody. Also, I didn't want to judge yeah, about Fidenza. It's, it was not a judgment, just a little fact check, maybe. <laughs> I think we've heard more. I mean, not so much for Fidenza, but I think the general collector base is becoming more wise to the fact that especially like a lot of early stuff on art blocks, which has been held up as the best examples of what's on the platform are maybe not necessarily the most technically interesting or, you know, there's, there's a lot more hype around being early and being first than there is around being the best. And I think it's finally starting to turn a little bit. I don't know that we're going to get people off of Fidenza or ringers necessarily very quickly because there's just so much, economic value locked up in those projects that it's going to be very difficult to get big voices to start saying you know what this ringer maybe shouldn't be worth like a million dollars you know like that's just there's a lot of um incentives to maintain at least some of those projects at a really high level on that this is not exactly where i think we plan to go but like do you hope or aspire to kind of like bring the community more knowledge and education on that i mean do you sometimes get frustrated with or disappointed in the collector base here do you hope that over time maybe as bigger institutions like you know we've seen lacma and moma now starting to dabble doing more stuff with nfts and code-based art that through their assessment of the field of artists here and what they're creating that ultimately more digitally native digital first stuff like what you and leander and andreas do right like might become that the sentiment's going to turn or like obviously i'm sure you hope that more and more people love your art and find you and, and collect you. But like from a 10, 20, 30 year picture, how do you kind of think it might shake out? It's quite interesting because the blockchain is not the, the start of digital art. Yeah. So the first blockchain minted project is nice in terms of speculation, but in terms of art, it, it has basically no meaning. Yeah. It's uh, all these, all these coders or whatever Photoshop artists or CGI artists have been around many, many years before. So this hyping of first is um, not valuable for me personally, but I'm also not an educator. I don't want to educate the community. I'm, I mean, I'm happy if I get asked and I'm, I'm happy to tell my story or my opinions even. But it's not that I want to change the world or change the collector's mindset or anything like this. I mean, everybody should have even the possibility yeah, and, and the time to build its own taste and uh, opinions and can even decide how deep they want to go into the topic. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, it's often also the same. I just see a work and either I like it or not. So yeah, it's an immediate decision happening somewhere in, in my head. I think that's very human and uh, should be respected. So I don't want to educate anybody. Um, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm happy if there's an interest in my work because then it enables me yeah, to keep going. And if people say, hey, wow, I collected your work and now it's running for seven days straight on our kitchen tv and it's like oh wow this is um, more valuable for me personally than just the speculation happening on some markets or anything like this so i'm more interested in what does an artwork really do with a person 
if it catches you, if it can open up some emotions in you and if it does something with you and you want to be with the artwork, then it's um, what I'm looking for. And maybe in the long term, I wouldn't say of course, but there is certainly is a chance that even bigger institutions will put stuff like this in their collections because somehow it's ultra contemporary. Yeah? If you use the computer at a level that is at a maximum level what is possible yeah we try to use the graphics card at a very high speed or max it out a bit while still trying to have an interesting output i can see that at some point there will be an led wall in any museum um, and then possibly showing a monogrid <laughs> i think that's something that we've seen with andreas giesen in some of his work where it translates between like the screen and light panels. And that's very cool to see. And also just kind of cool to see that you can look at both side by side and see that, oh, this is the same piece. Yeah, I think Andreas is the master of this turning a digital algorithm also into an object-like kind of thing. And um, he does also a lot of other object-like things and installations that uh, are very aesthetically and formal interesting. I think it uh, for me it's, it's a bit different because I see my work as more let's say digital native yeah it, it doesn't needs the device at all I mean of course you need some output to see it but uh, it should run on any device the cool thing is that a pixel translate very well to an LED it's like the same thing basically just in a different scale that's why a lot of my works also have a high amount of black areas yeah or black background because then you can yeah use it very well on on led presentations and um, also it's economically friendly i think to save a bit current <laughs> when you're working on any of your projects do you take into account the average person viewing experience versus the optimal i know from some folks who have been lucky enough to see your work installed like on a big scale they say it looks phenomenal like really blown up big on a wall but for most of us we're probably looking at it on a laptop or if we're lucky like a slightly bigger than average computer monitor so i know your work scales it's made to scale and size itself but do you kind of have a preferred way that you think it should be displayed or are there any projects that you feel like actually are appropriate to be displayed smaller versus larger does it play at all into your work or is it just kind of like no it scales everything is good at all sizes it's of course a compromise yeah either you define a fixed ratio or format resolution then you can play within these fixed dimensions if you want your work to scale to any screen size that comes with a lot of difficulties but also opens up a lot of possibilities and um at some point, it was just a decision uh, that I just wanted my work to fit on any screen. But um, yeah, to put it in, a, in another context, I always think of making the work not for the average person per se. Yeah, the, the average person is not the target, but let's say the the most professional is maybe the wrong word. But what's the right word? Um, yeah, maybe it's it's professional. Yeah, the most professional person is actually the target. I don't want to simplify anything that it's more easily to understand or more accessible in terms of understanding so my target is really other people who are like-minded like myself so i want to surprise them like myself i also think that i'm not interested in explaining how exactly i did that yeah for me it's not important that anybody or even experts understand each step so i i'm not interested in writing a big explanation i love art because it's a bit mystical and not easily to explain and when i see something and i immediately understand it and say okay i could do it myself without doing a lot of research or learning a lot of new things then it's less appealing yeah it's just a weird mindset that i have myself maybe but yeah somehow it's true yeah if you show me something and i don't exactly know how you did it and maybe there's just one or two questions that i cannot answer it becomes much more interesting and then i keep thinking about it and it becomes part of my mind and then it's good art so i don't want to take that away from anybody so keeping it a bit in a level of uncertainty 
I think this is a really interesting topic because I don't think it's a point of view that we have heard that much. How many interviews have we done at this point, Will? 50? About 50, yeah. About 50. <laughs> and this is something new and unique. So thank you for that. Some people describe me often as somebody who thinks out of the box and I like that a lot. Yeah, because I mean, you can never really understand yourself. Yeah, and you can also never completely describe yourself. I just think, okay, if if everybody goes right, I have the urge to go to the left. And um, that's uh, something I like to preserve for myself. A little childish. Wow, that's crazy. Normally I can say behavior, yeah? They, to be a bit naive about what I do myself and just do it and not need to explain why I do it. And um, this makes everything much more interesting for me. And that's also why I call this work expressive somehow. Yeah? It's, it's a level of self-expression. I don't want to educate somebody. I don't want to ha have a message in it. It's uh, something that is in me and, and wants out. Yeah. So with that said, at least out of the projects that we know and love you for, whether it's reading a book or Cargo or Zoom, which is, I think, one of my personal favorites, you know, they are all incredibly unique. And I think that there is a layer of storytelling that you engage in to a certain extent. I've been on discords where people say that they've looked at reading a book for 10 minutes, staring at it, and they feel like, oh, it's like reading a book. So is there any sort of narrative imposition that you put in your work when it comes to the theme for how does it move? How does it come to life? How do I name it? How do you get to the stage where you're producing it from like a narrative point of view? Yeah, the narrative is something that opens up to me only while experimenting and defining a concept. So it's, it's always a back and forth of having a slight idea yeah like a concept then executing the concept which it's already let's say an experimental act yeah because the concept is so vague and technical maybe even that i don't really know how it will look like and what comes out and if i see it that's the experimental part yeah to execute a concept then I often, of course, or most usually go back and forth. Yeah. So if I see the output and say, okay, no, this is not really working, which happens, of course, as well. I redefine the concept to go in a specific direction even more. Or So it's always a back and forth between defining something, executing it, being surprised or not, looking back to the concept. And while doing that, that can sometimes be a week it can also be months or just within a day the narrative around this work um, opens up to me more or less on its own yeah so th so the naming comes from what i feel when i look at the work yeah it's, it's not something that comes forward first i don't say okay i want to make a work that's titled cargo and uh, i go this route so it's more or less the essence is that comes at the end okay now I see this is what the work says to me and I decide to go with a title that is like a signature, yeah? It's something that is the end of the work. Okay, now I can, it's done, I can fix it. I put a name under it. I'm basically done with experimentating. So the experimental part is over. I polish the concept a bit. Yeah, that's more or less the last step. When you talked earlier in the interview that you're heavily influenced by like early computer use and video games and in transactions in particular, you cite the palettes coming from classic Nintendo, like NES, what, what that device was capable of producing. Are there any games or like other ways that those early games influence your work? I mean, do you go back to like when you were playing Return to Zork or some of that other like really early stuff? Like what, what were those formative games for you and how do you access like the nostalgia there and carry it forward to your work one game that is always on my mind is i think it's called scorch i don't know if you know that it's a very old game which is just one screen it basically draws a landscape like uh, setup 2d and then some tanks fall from above and land distributed on this 2d landscape line and each tank is basically yeah a player in the game and you shoot around and have to destroy the other tanks 
and the landscape of course evaporates or get destroyed over time and you fall down i think there are many remakes of this uh, game uh, it sounds like worms yeah exactly yeah worms worms is the classic it's even also old yeah from probably also from the 90s but yeah yep. that was the more polished version of that so it's it's in classic form of worms yeah? yeah that's something i always have in mind and but then i really stopped gaming when i was like 18 or 19 yeah and i never looked back except now with kids of course you do a bit gaming again but it took too much time for me and i realized okay now shit the day is already over it felt like three hours so i left gaming but still those aesthetics of the very early games also the way you use a c64 yeah a commodore 64 you insert a disc you write a few lines to start a game like summer games and and these winter games as those are still somehow um, part of my aesthetic in terms of yeah the pixel is always visible it's not realistic there's no real rendering happen yeah it's more a game that is drawn and not really rendered somehow if that makes sense <laughs> you did a project around SimCity 2000 right i think i saw that pop up i know will that's one of your favorites classic very formative game yeah <laughs> I loved it. Exactly, yeah. SimCity 2000 is a very, very great game. And um, yeah, a few years ago, I got an emulator to just play it a bit again. And uh, yeah, at the time when I did the work, it was called a solo show in SimCity. I just wanted to use SimCity as a stage to make art within the game. Yeah, so I just started the game and we're playing and building sculptures, doing some kind of performance-like happenings and recorded, screen recorded them and turns this into a series of animated GIFs. Yes, I think sculptures, performances and installations or something like this, um, it was it called. It's like a collection of 30 GIFs. Uh, some are funny, some are inspired by very classical art setups, some are just single objects from within the game, yeah, like a house so if you build a house in some city and don't care for it it starts to crumble down and become yeah like a broken house and um, a lot of things that felt just right at the time for me to do and um, that's yeah what i also mean by creating these little words yeah taking something make it your own and play with that well we're already at an hour so we need to get into one of the other reasons that you're here which is to talk about your upcoming show with Andreas and Leander, both of whom have been guests on our show, who we enjoy very, very much. Right now, it's just titled AGH, right, for each of your last names. What's the story about this upcoming exhibition? I mean, I think in our minds, it makes a lot of sense for the three of you to get together and exhibit work. We haven't seen anything from it from any of the artists. So like, give us the preview. Tell us like what, what kind of stuff we're going to see there. Get us excited that we want to learn. At first, it's really nice to hear that it seems to make sense. I think that's what we have a bit in mind. Um, so that is also, let's say, a, a radical approach to name everything just by our names. Don't explain too much. Um, so it, it should the combination of the of the three names A, G, and H um, should already give you a, le a certain level of expectations. What could happen to you? And yes, that's what I like the most out of it. I think the three of us together have met the first time in London at the Vertical Crypto event at the f uh, factory. Or was it the factory? We didn't go. I don't know. <laughs> are you American? So you, yeah. you, you're, you're not so, yeah. Sorry. Um, so it's a very classic rave location. Yeah, that is very old and very, very prestigious. So if, if you are into electronic music, especially from the UK, you know this venue just from hearing the name a thousand times basically and now however we that that was the first time we three met and we connected quite well on a personal level for us it's uh, also an opportunity to work together with friends it's let's say a group of friends who came together and maybe this group of friends has another level of bounding somehow because we share some levels of aesthetics, some levels of ideologies in terms of 
coding and using the computer some uh, some terms of the formal aesthetics that we all like so we respect our works each other's or how to say we enjoy our works so it's fun on two levels um on the artistic level um it makes sense for us we are in contact since then and uh, always ask a bit for opinions yeah if if i want to have an opinion of about a new work i would certainly ask these two guys first to uh, figure out if it makes sense or not <laughs> and i think it was andreas who just uh probably over a year ago uh, said hey let's do a show together yeah just for fun but it took a long time and it and it grew and the fun became also a bit serious of course since art is not just about fun but also something with meaning even if there's not a, a real message maybe it's also something we three share we extend the common uh, space by putting out some kind of formal structures or things that are not necessary or useful, but really just an extension. And maybe that's also the purest or most honest form of art. Yeah, It doesn't have a message or a clear purpose. It's just there because it needs to be there or it needs to come out of the artists. We took the opportunity to unite and call this first event AGH1 which is also maybe a statement that it could continue after that. There's maybe more that can happen. We've been scouting uh, rooms uh, in Berlin for some time with the help of Luke uh, Montgomery from, from Greater Star, who is based in Berlin. And he helped us a lot to get all the things in Berlin done. Eventually, we found a very nice industrial-looking room at the Funkhaus which was not very easy to get because the Funkhaus is very cultural, um, let's say, limited. So they don't rent out to any kind of occasion that you want to do there. So you really need to convince them to um, get a room. And for us, it was really important to just get out of the normal white space setup, yeah? especially on of this, okay, we put a TV screen on a white wall next to another TV screen and a room full of works and TV screens. So we wanted to put our work in a different context and have a bit more control and create a, a setup that has the potential to unfold an atmosphere. Yeah, like a real, it create an, our own atmosphere. That's yeah, what I hope for and what, what you can expect if you would come to the event on 7th of December in Berlin at the Funkhaus that um, it will be an experience, a, a bit immersive because we have a, a bigger, large-scale LED screen there and we share this this one screen. It's not, okay, everybody has its own screen and uh, it's like a group show. It's more something we can, even ourselves, not really define. So it's not an exhibition, it's not an installation, it's not a screening, it's somehow a bit of everything. For me, the most important is that it's an experience and uh, it will have its own atmosphere and we can create, I think, some, some nice documentation out of it that will last beyond the event. While most other NFT events are very, yeah, let's say, short living. Yeah, After the event, there's the next event and it has a similar setup or has these more or less not so thoughtful setups. And um, it's an extension of our need to express ourselves in a formal way that we yeah, have to. It's, it's just something we have to do. Well, for those of us who are not lucky enough to be in Berlin on December 7th, I know I won't be as much as I wish I could be there. Is there any way that we can experience or see what's happening online? I know that the three of you, in my opinion, are the absolute masters of the web browser. I was looking at Lenny's website while you were talking and just kind of loving each of the works that's up there and, you know, just also on the AGH site itself. Is there any sort of digital expression of this show that people could potentially experience? Yes, of course. I mean, we will certainly make a good documentation of it. So that's one point as well, to be more in control about what happens. That will certainly happen and the works we were going to showcase are three new works so each of us made a new work that will be shown there or will be prime there or premiere how do you say premiere right and uh, the idea now is to not show 
too much or probably nothing before the event. So it will be the first release of the works will be at this exhibition. And after that, these, yeah, these works are also meant to be, as our works usually do, to live in the digital space or in the internet. And um, the works will also leave these rooms at Funkhaus and become part of the internet. You are partnering with a highlight for distribution there. So sometime after the show, all that stuff will be sold. We've had Nat on. He was a great interview. So that's a, a platform that we've enjoyed that's kind of launched or not launched more recently, but has become kind of more prevalent more recently with the stuff they did with the on-chain summer. So it'll be very cool. Everyone check it out. And the website is agh.run. You're using Highlight here. You just released your last word, Cargo, with Art Blocks. And you know a question that we've been asking ourselves a lot lately and talking to guests about a lot in the show is just kind of the whole prevalence of all these different platforms to release work with. You know, we're super blessed that you've released so much stuff on FX Hash, a lot of stuff that we didn't even get to talk about too much in our limited time. But how do you think about the current ecosystem with Artblocks, Tonic, Verse, Highlight, FX Hash? You know, FX Hash has ETH now coming out with 2.0. And ETH versus Tezos, I mean, there's, there's a lot of renewed debate around that with FX Hash adding ETH to the platform. So how do you kind of take all this in as someone who's very, very art first, art focused, but still you have to consider getting this art into people's hands or making it accessible ultimately, and also the longevity of it, right? Like when you're choosing chains or choosing platforms and trying to understand the way that their backends and contracts work. So on-chain, IPFS. Yeah, on-chain, IPFS, right? So many different factors. So like, what is your current view on all of it? What matters to you? What matters less? And how do you decide, hey, for this one, it was Highlight. For Cargo, it ended up being Artblocks. You know, if you want to also talk a little bit about that process of, of the application. And, and, you know, you said earlier, at, at one point, didn't you didn't want to do that. But clearly, you did decide ultimately to apply. So very big open-ended question on just what's going on in the whole ecosystem for you there. <laughs> I really love the possibility to do everything on my own. And that's why I also moved a bit more to Ethereum. I can write the smart contracts on my own. That really means I can incorporate or this, the smart contract can become a real meaningful part of the artwork. It's not just a carrier. Mostly it's a carrier. People, of course, use a transaction hash or something as a seed but still the smart contract or the blockchain is rather a carrier than a real uh, a part of the artwork. For instance, for this work I will show in December, I wrote the smart contract myself and that gives me the possibility to play or experiment a bit and extend my way of conceptual thinking into the smart contract. So for instance, that would mean if you mint a piece directly from my smart contract. So I will have in my own website, you can mint directly from the website. If you mint one NFT, it will include four versions of the artwork. Yeah, so you have the possibility to execute a function in the smart contract to basically re-roll the dice and change the seed that is used for the random values along the chain or down the road of creating the output and uh, can re-trigger that. So it's basically a four of one collection. And that's something I really like. We also work with Highlight for the show, especially uh, Andreas and Leander will use Highlight as a minting platform. I think they are a good partner because they are very, very professional in what they do and they have a huge knowledge of what can be done with smart contracts. So I showed them my contract as well, of course, and they reviewed it and gave me a bunch of tips how I can optimize it somewhere beyond my own understanding or maybe, let's say, too complicated for what I need. Yeah, If I just have one smart contract for one artwork, I don't need all these possibilities or go completely into the best choice. But um, yeah, they helped me a lot to minimize the gas fees for the collectors to the absolute minimum instead of yeah, like my na naive way of programming. Okay, it, I don't think so much about that. In general, in terms, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Of course, it's always a bit where you are at the moment, what's possible, who reaches out to you, who you are in contact with, where are the nicest people yeah 
that's really uh, something that that matters a lot. Yes, can you work on a personal level together with them? Of course, uh, as an artist, you also have this vanity, yeah, the vanity of being put into nice places a bit. Working with art blocks is also, of course, nice. Um, or I've been in a show with Feral File. I think Feral File is run by Casey Reese and a, a few of his collaborators. And they know a lot about how artists with a longer, let's say, career work and what they need to be happy and, and what what's important that all these things make sense beyond just being a outlet to sell works. Maybe that's where, in the long run, a few things will have to be in hard competition with other platforms because they are just an outlet, just a sales market or a primary market in the first place, while others really care for the artist, the artworks, and all this stuff and really looking for possibilities to keep the artwork alive beyond the initial sale yeah so if, if let's say art blocks does an exhibition in two years and still shows cargo that means okay they really care for works that are no longer let's say financially important for the business of art blocks but of course it's an, still an investment into the significance of art blocks because that's something that will stay that they care for what they did and still invest in it as a statement even. So yeah, if I have to make choices, I would certainly or will and do care about that a lot. And what about FX Hash? I mean, with ETH coming, do you imagine ever releasing on an open platform like that again, where they're, you know, they're, they're not necessarily about getting behind one drop like that? It's just kind of like, anyone can come and drop anytime like is there the chance we might ever see a surprise release from you on either chain there in the future i still like fx hash for many reasons yeah they are like the cool kids in the gang <laughs> uh, absolutely and i'm all regularly in touch with paul for instance and um, need to stay informed what they do and uh, they ask me what i do so there's a, also a relationship beyond just being commercial kind of relationship so yes absolutely i'm, I'm looking very much into what they will do now uh, how it will work out how this 2.0 launch will look like what they will do and um, i think it's very smart from them to go multi-chain because just relying on one chain that is tezos could be a bit difficult or dangerous even yeah i really like tezos for many reasons but over the last two years all these reasons slowly disappeared they are not really active anymore in the arts they don't really push the limits anymore so it's not really clear where they will be in two years will they completely disappear and with ethereum on the other hand that was always clear yeah they don't support art it's not about art it's no matter but you could say it's quite a safe bet yeah so the, the blockchain of ethereum will pretty sure last longer than the tezos blockchain if i had to bet on it today i would at least go for that and that's also something that is important for me is that the artwork is a bit preserved. It has a lifetime that is as long as possible. It's also important for me that the collectors have the same feeling that they don't have to worry about the underlying cryptocurrency in terms of what will they do? What, what is the development of that? So to minimize that negative impact, Ethereum is certainly a good choice. And yeah, I'm curious uh, how FX Hash will turn out. And uh, I can certainly imagine to use that as a platform. It depends also a bit what they can offer in terms of customization of a smart contract. I really love to play with it and I certainly want to expand that even further. So um, if I can use my own smart contract, and maybe even integrated at some point in one of these platforms as that could also be nice or be an interesting kind of thing because to work with some partners is also a level of validation yeah even for yourself 
not just in terms of sales, but also for yourself as an artist and in terms of getting energy out of it. If you're all alone on your own computer, you could be a bit uh, lonely at some point. So it's, it's good to get out and be in touch with, with these communities around. And I also think that they are fundamental, of course, to the whole space. Yeah, So it totally makes sense that artists also support the platforms and the communities around and it's not just community supporting artists so it, it's it's a two-way relationship of course we're at our time here but maybe trinity if you want to do one last question on a project or a rapid fire style and then we got to go because i see my baby waking up <laughs> <laughs> maybe perhaps just one question you know this is a question that we asked pretty much all of our guests again thank you so much who do you think we should interview next Oh, that's a good question. Um, I could send you a, an answer after doing a bit of research because um, recommendations are always, at least for me, it feels always a bit unfair yeah, to, to say a name that comes to my mind. I would certainly forget somebody. I'm really bad at recommendations. <laughs> but I can look it up and can can give you a few names where I just have my very personal interest in getting to know or learning a bit about their process or insights. If it makes you feel any better, we don't have a very strong follow-up rate. You know, you're not actually dictating who the next person will be <laughs> on the yeah. show or anything like that. Don't worry about that. But we'll happily take those recommendations from you offline. You've got us on Discord. Spontaneous, I would say. I try to, to get uh, more women into the podcast that they are yeah probably a bit underrepresented but oh yeah on the other hand it's also a lot of males in this field which yeah makes this discussion as a male like myself um, a bit uncomfortable as well we try it's been a while well kim thank you so much it was a pleasure having you on and learning more about your work talking through kind of the history early days of fx hash i encourage everyone to go check out Kim's website, which is not fully up to date, doesn't have all your projects on there, but it's partially up to date and you can see a bunch of his work on Object, FX Hash, OpenSea now, you know, for our blocks and the other releases. So tons of stuff out there for you to explore if you haven't checked out his work yet. That's on my to-do list for next year, get a new proper website. <laughs> so I've been pushing that for yeah a long time now. I really need to get something serious. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, be on the lookout for the upcoming AGH1 exhibit. You can learn more at agh.run. We've completed the trifecta. We've interviewed all three of you. So it's really perfect. <laughs> we're, we're big fans of everyone in that exhibit on a personal level here. So, all right, that's it for this one, everyone. We hope you all enjoyed. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Until then, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.